What is an antinomy? What is an antinomy? An antinomy is a contradiction between conclusions, both of which seem equally logical, reasonable, and necessary. See, there is an appearance of contradiction today. And we will be discussing the appearances of contradiction that are not actually contradictions, even though they appear as one. And that is the idea of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. When we, uh, we've moved into Romans 9 and are on to this topic of election, namely, has God elected Israel or not? And if they are elected, why do they reject Jesus as the Messiah of God? Why do they not believe in Christ? Of course, this doesn't just have to apply to Israel. Now, I don't want us to move off of that because it speaks more to us. Like, my son, let's say, is not currently believing the gospel about Jesus. Does he mean that he's not, does that mean he's not elect? Now, I get the temptation for us to move there, to apply that to in a lot of different ways. But Paul is showing how we got here to the place where the Jews are rejecting the Christ and the Gentiles are believing him. And in part, the question is there just like it is about you and your child. Is this permanent? Now today I want you to be able to hold the tension. Now this is an important idea. Like if you're crocheting or knitting, to make a sweater, you need to hold the appropriate tension in the yarn or the string. If you are fishing, you need to be able to hold the appropriate tension in the line or the fish won't bite. If you are climbing mountains or slacklining between two trees, you must have the appropriate tension in the rope or you will fall. In this section, Paul is asking, is Israel's hardening, their rejection of Jesus, the cause or the result? That is, has God rejected Israel because of its unbelief, or has Israel been unable to believe because God has rejected her? And here is the antinomy. Two things standing side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. In the scriptures, here Paul will say both are true. Now, J.I. Packer shares a couple examples in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I want to share those. Modern physics faces an antinomy in this sense. Now, if you're a physicist in here, I'm a theologian. Just remember that. If this is wrong, don't come up to me afterwards and tell me how wrong this is or how wrong J.I. Packer is. But here's what he says. There is cogent evidence to show that light consists of both waves and equally cogent evidence to show that it consists of particles. Now, it's not apparent how light can be both waves and particles, but the evidence is there, so neither view can be ruled out of favor of the other. Neither, however, can be reduced to the other or explained in terms of the other. The two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together in tension. And both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt. But there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. Today, there are two tracks of the train, each very real and present, moving along parallel to one another and yet never crossing. They exist into eternity. 
as two equal facts about the world and the way the world works. And the Bible doesn't really attempt to cross them or explain them away. God is sovereign, one track of the train, and man is responsible, the other track of the train. And so the question this morning is, what should we do with that antinomy? And here's what Packer says. He says, we, are, we should take, and this is kind of this blanket overall umbrella for us this morning as we approach Romans 9 and later 10 and 11. How, what do we do with the antinomy of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty? The two tracks of this train. We accept it for what it is and learn to live with it and into it. We refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. We put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of our own understanding. We think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp and are complementary to each other. We are careful, therefore, not to set them as loggerheads, nor to make deductions from either that would cut across the other. We use each within the limits of its own sphere of reference. And we note what connections exist between the two truths and the two frames of reference and teach yourself to think of reality in a way that provides for their peaceful coexistence, remembering that the reality itself has proved actually to contain them both. These two things are, man is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled, and man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. Now, to get at this this morning, our outline is two questions and a twist. Two questions and a twist. Last week, we ended with Paul saying that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac was the son of the promise, and God passed over Ishmael. And then to drive the point further home, Paul tells us that God chose the younger Jacob over the elder twin Esau before either knew or did anything right or wrong. Driving it home with these words, it was Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so when Paul tells us this, he hears us then asking this question. Is God unjust? Is God unjust? Again, a rhetorical question, a question that arises that he asks without wanting an answer because he is going to answer the question. And so he does so. How does he answer this question? He's going to answer it, of course not. God is, of course God is not unjust. I've just been preaching about this for the last nine chapters. God is not unjust. Now he's going to unpack how we know that God is not unjust. And he gives the example of Moses. To Moses, God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this episode comes in the context of Moses asking God to see his glory. Please, God, Moses says, show me who you are. What is it that makes you God? Now, think of all the countless things God could have shown Moses, could have told Moses. God could have taken him back to the garden to show his creative power. God could have taken to the end of the story to show his divine justice. But what does God do? He replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And this is God's goodness when he says the next line, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. That is God's goodness. It is God's name, the Lord. What does God show that his glory or his essence or his name is? It's 
It's wrapped up in mercy. Now what's interesting is a targum at this time of Paul's time, a targum is a Jewish translation of this passage in Exodus. The translation said, I will spare whomever is worthy of being spared, and I will have mercy on whomever is worthy of being pitied. This is often what we think about when we think about the gift of mercy. Do we not, beloved, think about who will do the most with my pardoning love? Who will actually take my act of mercy and use it for the best benefit? That is the one who's worthy of mercy. But God is not like this. He is not like us. His gift is free and it is unmerited. We've used the word through Romans, it's incongruous. God justifies, we're told in Romans 5, people while they are still sinners. It is what makes mercy merciful. And you can hear the rejoinder from verse 16. By all the morally upright people, does man's desire then and effort count for nothing? Now, these are terms related to an athletic contest suggesting devotion. If you have ever committed yourself at being good at a sport, you know the devotion that is required. And if you know Paul's story, there is much devotion that he gives to Christ. But this, Paul wants us to know, has nothing to do with God's election. Human efforts might be a response to the gra- of gratitude for the gift, but the gift remains totally free. And it isn't arbitrary, but it is designed for the very effect to show mercy. God gives gifts to show mercy. And what is the thing about mercy? Can any of us say mercy is unfair? Now think about this for a second. Can mercy be unfair? Like mercy, by its very definition, cannot be an obligation. Mercy is undeserved. It's free. Paul's argument is to say it is unfair for God to have mercy on whom he has mercy is in itself a contradictory statement. Does God own anyone salvation? Does God owe anyone salvation? And maybe that's the crux for some of us. Our fear is that God will use his power arbitrarily and without regard for subjects like us. Like the idea of mercy to the undeserving sets us raw because we believe ourselves to be deserving. And Paul gets this point. It is the heartbeat of his gospel to say no. All of us have fallen short of God's glory, and this is why mercy is such a shocking gift to be given by God. Paul defends God's justice in this passage by championing his mercy. Here's what John Stott says about it. Paul's way of... Sorry, I went the wrong way. Brian has a big uh, arrow on the clicker for me not to do that, and I just did it. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it is not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. You see, friends, salvation does not depend on desire or effort, but on a God who extends his mercy. 
And no one can accuse God of being unfair or not extending his mercy to more than he chooses to because mercy is his gift and not our work or our rights. Now let's illustrate this from Scott's Tots. If you're a fan of The Office, you know Scott's Tots, right? Right in this episode of The Office, we are told that Michael Scott, the manager of Dunder Mifflin, chooses some kids from an inner skitty school and promises to pay this class of kids for their college. The promise is made when the kids are like in second grade. And Michael thinks that by the time these kids are graduating, he will be a multimillionaire and it won't be that much of a cost. So he chooses these kids. They are, the, they are not the only worthy recipients of being Scott's tots. But if Michael were to follow through on his promise, would he then be unfair to everyone else? If Michael was only merciful to this group of students, would he then be unfair to include everyone else in Scott's tots. No. He's not under obligation to help any. It is mercy, and so there can be no talk of being unfair. Now, of course, in the show, Michael really can't help any of them. And in one of the most awkward episodes of The Office ever, he shows up to the school near graduation day and has to tell these kids he can't pay for any of their school. It's a painful episode. Now, Paul is saying nobody has a claim on God's mercy. And if they did, it would no longer be mercy. But because the wages of sin is death, the shock is not that God would extend compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. And this is where the tension must be held in the line. Mercy is a gift owed to none, and God gives it to whom he wishes, and that's what makes it mercy. And this is, a ver- this is part of his very nature. Now, in verse 17, Paul moves to the second illustration. Is God unjust? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a case study on the idea of this antinomy, the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This story is told in Exodus 4 to 14. At several points in the scriptures, we are told God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4, 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power. But I, God, will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Here Paul tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart to fulfill his plan. For this very purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose is to be merciful and to proclaim his name, that name that he is merciful to whom he will show mercy in all the earth. And he uses Pharaoh to do it by hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, before we go too far here, the scripture also tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 8.15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God tells us that Pharaoh is being punished because he set himself up against God's people. Now, we all know that Pharaoh was wicked. He enslaved this people and then sought to wipe them out. And we are told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What is it? 
Did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? Which is it? Well, it's both. See, Lloyd-Jones, the preacher, says, the world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it, and this world would be in complete chaos in hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence at any point, there is hardening there. So that, that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. And what's the effect of this? Don't miss this. Pharaoh's hardening accomplishes the opposite of Pharaoh's intent. Through the hardening, the Jews will be liberated. God uses it to work for his people's advantage. This is crucial because that is, this is the trajectory and the tension that Paul is inviting us into. God's mercy lands on whoever he wills, and God hardens whoever he wills. But the result is God's power and name are proclaimed in all the earth. And the effect is redemption. God used Pharaoh's hard heart to save Israel. And God will use, this is, by, this is what Paul's doing here, God will use Israel's hard heart to save the Gentiles. God gives us over to sin in order to provoke us to repentance. That's what Paul's been saying throughout the first part of Romans. He turns us over in our sin so that it might produce repentance in us. This is severe mercy. And Paul will say in Romans eleven thirty two, 32, we'll come to this later, but God has bound all men to disobedience so he may have mercy. God has bound all men to disobedience so he may have, may have mercy on us all. Antinomy, two tracks. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the purpose is that God's mercy might be extended. So now Paul moves to the second question from this. From is God unjust to this question. If God pities some and hardens others, who can be blamed? Again, coming back to can man be responsible? In resisting God's will is not one only acting out of a predetermined role. Like, are we not just all actors, God as the director, and we're just reading our scripts, in other words? Right, this is the question. These are the questions that this begs for us. These are the very real and honest questions that come out of God, uh, God's sovereignty and having mercy on whom he will have mercy. Paul answers this in three ways. First, in verses 21, 20 and 21, Paul says, God made us. God is the potter, and we are the clay. We are not just acting out a script because God has the rights of ownership. Who are you then to talk back to your owner? This echoes Job 38 to 40, 41. In the story of Job, right, Satan wants to prove Job only loves God for what he receives from God and not for God himself. So God allows Satan to test Job. God could have let Job into this spiritual dimension. He could have invited him into the conversation. He could have told him what he was doing, but he's, he, he does not. Instead, in 38 to 41, he approaches Job and says, Who are you, Job, to question your creator? And the point is, we must beware of standing in judgment over God, right? We do this. Shoot, I've done this just this week in regards to particularly particular challenges in my family. 
Like, I've asked God, what are you doing? And the point isn't that we can't ask necessarily, but the point is to remember that God is the potter and we are the clay. And this is the picture Paul gives in regards to this question of acting out of predetermined roles. The potter is at the wheel, shaping his creation. And in pottery, right, there's there's stages. The the, the lump stage, where it's just a lump of clay. The, The shaping stage, where you put that clay on the wheel. Again, if you're a potter in here... I'm not. I'm speaking as a pastor to you, trying to give an example of pottery, right? But the second stage is that stage where the potter shapes the clay on the wheel. And the third stage is when it's put in the fire and glazed and it's finished. The potter shapes the clay on the wheel and the potter doesn't make square jugs on the wheel, Here Paul is reflecting on passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And these passages tell the story of Israel when God was struggling with Israel in their rebellion. It was like they would harden themselves and wouldn't be formed. And these passages speak very specifically about Israel's purpose, why God called them and chose them and about what would happen, the kind of breaking that would happen if they didn't respond to his gentle molding. Israel was called to be a light to the world, but Israel hardened her heart and rebelled just like Pharaoh. They were a lump of clay challenging the potter, demanding to be made into different shapes. What about you? Where do you challenge the potter to be made into a different shape? I think this is real for us, right? Whether it's circumstances of life, whether it's creative ordinances that God gives to us, whether it's how you feel about your enemy, what the objector has to learn is that he is a creature and a sinner and has no right to find fault with the revealed ways of God. Creatures are not entitled to register complaints about their creator. As Paul goes on to say, God's sovereignty is wholly just, for his right to dispose of his creatures is absolute. Earlier in the epistle, he had shown that God's judgment of sinners was wholly just. Since our sins richly deserve his sentence, Our part, he would tell, is to acknowledge these facts and then to adore that God gives righteousness both as king and judge to anyone. Our part is not to speculate how his just sovereignty can be consistent with his just judgment and certainly not to call justice of either in question because we find the problem of their relationship too difficult for us. Our speculations, then, are not the measure of our God. The Creator has told us that He is both sovereign Lord and righteous judge. He has told us that He is both loving and merciful, and that should be enough for us. Why do we hesitate to take His word for it? Can we not trust what He says? And we ought not to be in any case surprised when we find ourselves in this sort in God's word. For the Creator is... 
oftentimes incomprehensible to his creatures. And God, a God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of itself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever, would be a God in man's image. And therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible. For what the for what the God of the Bible says is this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Here, talking about salvation, by the way, and neither my ways are your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So Paul is saying God's purpose for salvation is for mercy to go forward. And this isn't arbitrary. God has a purpose of salvation, and that is the plan. The pot isn't yet ovened and glazed. When the clay goes in, the only response is to break the pot to pieces and start over. And God is not doing that yet. God here is a God of mercy. He still is a God of mercy. And his mercy is to give and and to give so that the clay would be redeemed and remade and remolded. This is you. This is me. It's our neighbors. We are all clay. And we're destined for the work of God to be a piece of art for the world, that the world might see its maker. That's what God is up to here. And this is where Paul moves his argument. In verse 22, his second answer, God is the author of of this salvation. Paul says, God bore with great patience objects of his wrath. Now, remember, this is what Paul says earlier in the book. God turns over in the hardness of their hearts. He gives us what we want. A judgment of a type is turning us over to what we want. But yet, Paul says, God remains. His presence remains, even if in our sin we do not know it. He bears with us as we reject God, walk away from God, go the other way from God, harden our hearts to God, put our ears, hands in our ears to God's word. When we do that, God continues to bear with us patiently. He, he lets rain fall and food be given, even in the midst of our running the other way from God. And even in that, God sins. Preachers will be tell, told to preach to those who are wayward and running away. He continues to bear with our sins in patience. That is our God. He is the author of salvation. That's the work that he is up to here. And Paul says the objects of wrath are prepared for destruction. We don't know who that is. He's not saying, by the way, whom here, by the way. But in verse 23, he says the objects of mercy are prepared in advance for glory. God is the author of salvation. And here's the tension. We are the authors of damnation. And God is the author of salvation. And God hands us over to the life and the death we have chosen. And then in verse 23, we find the third answer. Are we just actors? Are we just playing roles? God is showing the riches of his glory by having mercy on some and passing over others. And this is the heart of the antinomy, holding this tension in the line. Somehow, if God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. And maybe this is where all our questions sit. If God could save everyone, why doesn't he? Right, this gets to the heart of our fears. 
A lack of control is one of the greatest fears for us in the modern West. A lack of individuality. A lack of writing my own story. A lack of naming my own ends. That really gets at us as Westerners. And so we sit here in the tension of that. If God can save everyone, why doesn't he? And Paul says that God's chosen course by saving some and not all will in the end be more fit to show God's glory, in other words, his mercy and love than any other scheme we might imagine. And this is difficult, friends. Calvin says, the the limitedness of human understanding cannot fathom the divine purpose. And he adds, it errs when it tries to do so. There is madness in the human mind to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. We do not know. That's the answer that Paul gives here, by the way. We do not know and we are not meant to know. These are tracks on the train that do not cross in this life. Man is responsible. God is sovereign. But God's mercy is free. Stott says, if anybody is lost... The blame is theirs, but if anyone is saved, the credit is God. The antinomy contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. D. James Kennedy tells this story. Here are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of mine. I find out about it. I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead and rob the bank. A guard is killed. They are captured, convicted, sentenced. The one man who is not involved in the robbery grows free. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men died? Now this other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is good, I am a free man. The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves, and those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus the Christ. Thus we see that salvation is grace, all grace from beginning to its end. Friends, salvation is grace. There are objects of wrath and mercy, some for noble use and some for common purpose. And God is perfect in love and justice and remains patient in order to show mercy. And both objects of wrath and mercy are alike instruments of God's savoring work in history. And so it is with Jews and Gentiles. Like a shaft of light, the call of grace pierces the farthest reaches of our world and creates the church, the Israel of God. And the church exists because God called it into being. Even objects of wrath are given mercy. Israel isn't destroyed, just as the Gentiles before them weren't destroyed. God is hardening the hearts of Israel so the Gentiles might receive the gospel. And the end result will be a benefit to both. And so Paul reminds us that God is a God of reversals. What matters in verse 24 is not 
physical descent, but God's call. Your physical makeup, your bloodline doesn't matter. It's God's call on you that matters. And here, Paul's example is from the prophets. In verses 25 to 29, we see that God keeps his promises, but often in a surprising way. Here, Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea is prophesying about what would happen to Israel in the exile. And this is the template of sort about what Paul is doing for the Gentiles. He is saying God is always a God who blesses those who don't deserve it and could not have predicted it. Those who are not my people will be called my people. Now, I'm terrible with first impressions. I've maybe said this to you before, but many of my best friends were people when I first met them was like, I did not like them. I don't know what they thought about me. They probably did not like me either. They might still not like me. But I'm really bad at first impressions. And yet, almost invariably, like, I would be surprised at what God would do through someone who is totally unlike me in my life and what I might do in their life being totally unlike them. You see, the surprise is God has always been saving a remnant who did not deserve it. First it was Israel, and now it's the Gentiles. If the Gentiles are flocking to Christ now, should that surprise us, Paul is asking. In the exile, God promised that only a remnant would be saved, and it was God's mercy that prevented Israel from being snuffed out like Sodom and Gomorrah. God has always been the God who rejected those who thought they deserved his blessing and presumed upon it. And God keeps his promises and has mercy on those who don't deserve it. Now sit into that this morning. As you leave this place, sit into it. Do you need mercy? And remember, God is a God, if you ask for bread... Will he give you a stone? Friends, you should cry out for mercy this morning. That's the response to the sermon. No matter where you sit, the call is to cry out to the God who shows mercy. And then to ask you a question, are you presuming upon that mercy? And if so, what should you do? Well, you should cry out for mercy. Even as you sit here presuming upon said mercy, you should cry out to the God who shows mercy. And mercy doesn't always look like mercy at first. Like sometimes mercy does look severe. Last, you should rid yourself of the temptation to jettison the antinomy. Like, we are tempted to get rid of antinomies from our mind by illegitimate means, like, to suppress them or jettison one truth in supposed interest of another truth for the sake of a tidier theology. So in this present case, the temptation is to undercut and maim the one truth by which we stress the other truth, to assert man's responsibility in a way that excludes God from being sovereign or to affirm God's sovereignty in a way that destroys the responsibility of man Both mistakes need to be guarded against. And this will be especially important as we move into chapter 10 and talk about 
evangelism, the free offer of the gift of the gospel. To understand rightly how we are to be a people who freely offer as preachers to those who have not heard this message and gift of grace, we must be a people that don't jettison this antinomy, that don't make us, like I said last week, into a frozen chosen. We have to keep the tension in the line. So this morning, I invite you into this place now to a God who says, if you cry out for bread, will I give you a stone? And come forward this morning to this table where God, who shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and has compassion on whom he will show compassion, offers you the bread of life and blood that will cleanse you from the sin that stains and tarnishes your soul. And you're invited this morning to come and take and imbibe that and eat and receive God's mercy. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us. This is tough. It was long, too. So I pray that you would help us to think about this. Our accusations to you of being unjust, our frustrations when feeling that we're just playing a part that you have dictated and yet also our very nature that hardens our hearts and sticks our fingers in our ears, covers our eyes to the truth of your mercy. We are thus that person, that people, both the ones that were running away from your throne with hands over eyes and fingers and ears, and also the ones that you chose to say, You who once weren't a people, now you are a people. You are my people. That's the God you are. That's what you've done. And we, sitting here, our very presence, physically, being able to hear my words, your word being preached and proclaimed, are evidence that you have called us. We are here. And because we are here, you are calling us even now. So I pray we would respond. Give us eyes to uh, ability to take the, the scales off our eyes, to unclog our ears, to see the Jesus who does that for us, that we might believe. We are dependent on you acting, God. And I pray that we would respond to your action. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.